you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, that's going to be on page 836, 836. In our preparation for celebrating the birth of Christ on Christmas, we are taking the four Sundays before Christmas, Uh, those four Sundays are referred to as Advent, and we're taking those four Sundays to see what the gospel writers have to say to us about the coming of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, we saw how Jesus, uh, how Matthew emphasized Jesus as the king, the long-awaited ruler, the only one worthy of our worship, our trusts, and our obedience. Today, we move to the second of the the, the four Gospels, to the book of Mark. Now, we know that Mark is the shortest of all of the Gospels, by quite a bit, actually. It was the first, though, to be written, and it is uh, action-packed. We we went through the book of uh, Mark here at our church uh, a few uh, years ago, and we, we saw how the, the word immediately is used uh, a lot throughout those 15 chapters. And it's the sense of one, one action after another, a lot of activity. It is an action-packed book moving swiftly from, from one thing to, to another. Mark's attention in his gospel was not so much on what Jesus said, but on what Jesus did, very much emphasizing his actions. And so to this point, we find that Mark did not record, uh, for instance, the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew records. It's a pretty significant thing that, that Jesus said, and Mark doesn't record it. He also records less parables than the other writers. He also does not include a genealogy of Jesus, nor does he include a birth narrative now, there's no record, no, no story in the book of Mark of when Jesus was born. Now, one may wonder about these omissions, particularly the birth story. Uh, but it would be helpful for us or maybe informative for us to, to remember or to know who Mark is writing to. Uh, Matthew was, was writing to some, a different group than, than Mark was. Mark's audience was not primarily Jews, but primarily non-Jews. Gentiles, uh, Romans, in fact, who would not have been interested in a, in a uh, Hebrew genealogy. That, that would make no difference to them. They, they don't really care about a list of, of begats. They, they, they don't care about that. And they're not familiar with Jewish customs. So the writer's focus here is, is on the person of Jesus, his work, his action, and that he is this suffering servant of God, as Mark un- unfolds for us. It was Jesus' humanity that this gospel emphasizes. And so without a birth story or a list of descendants, Mark gets right to it in chapter one, verse one, by saying, in the beginning, let me rephrase that, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. One pastor says here that that Mark is neither a discussion nor a debate, it is an announcement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here, Mark is announcing to his readers 
that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is here. The beginning, the beginning, or the origin of. Mark's word choice here reminds us of another book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, that begins in the beginning. Or the Gospel of John that says, in the beginning was the word. We'll look more about that next week. But here, Mark says, the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word gospel means good news. That's what the word actually means. It means the, the message or the announcement of good news. Now, the word, though, in the church, we think of it exclusively tied to, uh, to Jesus or to the Bible. It's not exclusively connected to Christianity or to the Bible. The Romans use this word, and they use the word for joyful news about the emperor. So when, when a king would, would be coming to a city, uh, before he would get there, there would be a herald that would go before him and uh, would tell of his coming, would inform everyone that he was going to, to be there. He would announce his arrival. And in a sense, Mark is skipping the birth story and getting right to the announcement of Jesus' arrival, and it's good news. He, he wants to tell them about this good news. So then the good news here is of what? Of, of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this this means both the news about Jesus and the news that Jesus would preach. Mark is tying that together. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only what Jesus would say, but the news about him explicitly. One writer notes that the gospel here means the inbreaking of God's kingly rule, the advent of his salvation and vindication. The good news is the message not only of the birth of Jesus, but of salvation through Jesus. Later, the Apostle Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The good news is not just about the birth of Jesus, but about the salvation through which Jesus, the salvation in which Jesus offers us. The gospel is an announcement. It's a declaration. Something has happened. Someone has come. It is the story. It's the story of Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he wraps this all into to a nutshell. In chapter 15, verses 3 and through, through 5, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I have received, what is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to, with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelves. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in a nutshell of what Christ has done. Mark is recording the facts of this good news. John Piper writes it this way, the gospel is the news that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins and rose again, eternally triumphant over all his enemies, so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Danny Aiken, the time of God's salvation plan has arrived. God has kept his promise, sending his Messiah, end quotes. Mark is telling us that the beginning is the good news that Jesus has come. And he tells us something about this person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see three, three words here, or three titles, or three names. The first is Jesus. This is the Greek name for Joshua, meaning Yahweh is salvation, or Jehovah saves. Last week we looked at Matthew's gospel, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel says to Joseph, she, talking about Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus had significance for what it meant. Jehovah saves. So when Mark announces the beginning of the gospel, of who? Of Jesus, of, of the one who saves, of this Yahweh who is salvation. It is good for us to remember that salvation comes only through Jesus. Jesus said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Again, the Apostle Paul writes throughout the, the New Testament in several places. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Or 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, And how from childhood you have been acquainted, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is through him, through this one, salvation comes. Jehovah saves. How does he save? Through Jesus. The second word we see here is not only is it Jesus, but Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, the second word actually isn't a name as so much as it is a title. This is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' middle name. This is a title, Messiah, anointed one. By, by calling Christ, by calling Jesus Christ, it was no small thing. It was no small thing to say that. We, we, we say it very easily and very fluently and, and we understand some of what it means. But the significance was several things. One, it, it meant this, that the promised offspring who would crush the head of Satan is Jesus. When the Bible calls Jesus the Christ, it's saying the promises. We've been studying Genesis. And in Genesis chapter three, God makes a promise that from the offspring of Eve would come one who was going to crush the head of, of, of the serpent. Calling Jesus the Christ is to say that he is the promise. He is the fulfillment of this long-awaited prophecy from Genesis chapter 3 and other prophecies. He is the one whom the, the prophets had long foretold. We think of Isaiah and, and Micah and Zechariah and all the prophecies of this coming Jesus, of Messiah, Jesus fulfilled them. He is the one that God's people had waited for. Years and years and years, hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting. And Jesus comes 
and we're told that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one. It's no small thing that Mark opens this book by saying the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the, the child of the virgin in Isaiah chapter 7, who would be called Emmanuel. Jesus Christ is the, the baby son upon whom, whose shoulders the government would one day rest, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. And he is the everlasting king from the line of David, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. It's no small thing here. It's significant that Jesus is the Messiah. This title, uh, stated here, anticipates Peter's confession in chapter 8. Flip, flip with, your, with me to chapter 8 of Mark. We're approximately halfway through the, the 16 chapters of Mark here in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asks, who do, who do, who do people say that I am? He's asking his disciples. In verse 27, he says just that. In verse 28, they, they told him, um, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And then verse 29 says, Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And here's Peter's answer, his confession. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Here in chapter 1, verse 1, Mark begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ. Now here in chapter 8, Peter is confessing that, it is, that he is in fact, and that he believes him to be in fact the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of God's promises. But not only that, Mark says that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now this is a favored title for identifying Jesus in Mark's gospel. He uses Son of God. He uses the word, just the word Son. He uses Son of the, the Most High God. But it communicates here both his pre-existence and his deity. His pre-existence and his deity. Uh, Charles Ryrie writes this, that the designation Son of God. Now, sometimes we, we have a little bit of trouble. Some people have a little bit of trouble with the, the, the term Son of God. Because it, it sounds as though, what are we saying about Jesus? Is Jesus less than God? Was Jesus, uh, did Jesus originate from God? Did he somehow, is he an offspring of God? Well, what do we mean when we say Son of God? Ryrie helps us here. The designation Son of God, when used of our Lord, means of the order of God and is a strong and clear claim to full deity. He continues, in Jewish, Jewish usage of the term, son of, then there could be lots of different things that could be said there, son of blank, that did not generally imply any subordination. When, when someone was called the son of, it wasn't, deter it wasn't subordinate, it wasn't lower, but rather equality, in identity of nature. So when Jesus is called the son of God, it's not to say that in any way that he is less than God. It's actually saying that he is equal with God in his, his essence and in his nature. 
J.C. Ryle says these words, Son of God, are worth, uh, are noting nothing less than an assertion of our Lord's divinity. They were a declaration that Jesus was himself very God and equal with God. Jesus was a real person. He was a human. That's absolutely true. He had flesh on. And he's called here the Son of God. The Son of God. He, in fact, uh, the Bible tells us that he was obedient to the Father. Tells us that he did the will of the Father. But that was an intentional, willful position. Putting himself under the Father. By his nature, he is divine. He is co-eternal with the Father. He has always been. He is the same in essence as the Father. He is absolute deity. He is God. It's very important that we understand this about Jesus. Jesus is not less than God. We call him the, the second person of the Trinity, but the second in no way is, is in any, any way less than. To, to understand that Jesus is God is essential to understanding what Jesus did and why his sacrifice actually was sufficient. He is the same in the essence of the Father. That the title, Son of God, describes what one writer calls Jesus' unique and unparalleled relationship with God. No other relationship like this. And we should note, just so we're clear, that the Son of God did not come into existence at Christmas. Now, Jesus was born at Christmas. We understand that. But that doesn't mean that Jesus came into existence at Christmas. No, the incarnation is that God became man. Jesus has always been. He is co-eternal with the Father. He has always existed. Jesus has always existed. But at Christmas, he took on bodily form and came to us. It's very, very different. And an, an, important, an important and necessary distinction. The first mention, uh, this first mention of Son of God here in chapter 1, verse 1, anticipates another mention. It's actually at the end of the book. Flip, flip with me to chapter 15. Chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, Jesus is on the cross, being crucified. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, begins by stating that this Jesus is the Son of God. And the gospel basically ends or concludes with a centurion, a Roman centurion, identifying that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet not only did Mark writing chapter 1, verse 1, and the centurion here in chapter 15, verse 39, rightly identified Jesus. But in the next verses in chapter 1, Jesus' Jesus's identity is authenticated in three different ways. First, in verses 2 and 3, by the prophets. Look at it with me. 
As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, I said, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, this is actually is not just one quotation here in chapter or verses two and three. There's actually two quotations. It's actually one from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 30, and one from Malachi chapter three, verse one. But both of these prophets are telling us of a messenger who would prepare the way of the Lord, a messenger who would be the voice crying out in the wilderness. This type of messenger would be one who would announce, as we already talked about, the arrival of a king. And not only would he announce that arrival, but that he would prepare for that arrival. He would, he would go before the king. He would make sure that there, was, there, were, there were no obstacles or, or roads that would impede him. He would prepare the people for the king. Here what Mark is saying is that there would come a messenger who would precede Jesus, who is the Lord, he calls him. Prepare the way of the Lord. These prophets spoke of a messenger. And who would this messenger be? But it would be John the Baptist's. Mark is making the connection here between the Old Testament prophecies and the ministry of John the Baptist, which prepared for the Lord, who is Jesus. So even in these prophetic fulfillments that Mark is uh, connecting us with, he's showing to us that this, this one that the prophets talked about, who would prepare, is John the Baptist, but he's preparing for the Lord, who is Jesus. Well, he's not the only one who authenticated Jesus. Secondly, we see John the Baptist himself, the messenger, in verses 4 through 8. Now, verse 6, we, we, we hear this pretty wild description of, of John the Baptist. He was kind of a, a wild man. Um, but nevertheless, he was sent for a purpose to prepare the way of the Lord. And he did so by calling people to repentance. That's actually how he prepared the people. That his, his pr- preparation, or the preparation, was a call to repentance. Look at verse four. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, Preaching repentance, uh, sin, and and judgments are not happy subjects, right? They're they're not the itching ear topics that that many people like to hear. And uh, this kind of preaching has fallen on hard times in many pulpits. No no one likes to be told that they need to repent. No one wants to hear that. But John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare people for Jesus by calling them to recognize their sin and therefore to repent of that sin, recognizing their need then for a savior. The gospel of the Lord Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, is a gospel of repentance. It's a gospel that confronts our sin and calls us to repentance. And so to preach the gospel without calling people to repentance is to preach another gospel, a false gospel. Anathema is what the Apostle Paul would say to that in Galatians. John the Baptist was intent on pointing others to the Messiah. Look at verses seven and eight. And he preached, uh, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier. 
Let me try that again. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John recognized what his ministry was. And his ministry was to point other people to Jesus. He was authenticating who Jesus was by getting out of the way and pointing people to Jesus. It was all about him. In fact, ministry is always and only to be about Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist, who, who, is, who is said to be a great man, uh, the, the greatest, but his ministry wasn't about him, was it? In, in a sense that, that no one um, celebrates a, a finger pointing to something as though the finger did anything. No, the finger is the pointer, right? The finger is pointing to the thing, right? It, it, is, it is the object not of attention, but the direction. And so John the Baptist isn't to be celebrated. John the Baptist isn't, isn't trying to get any attention. He is the one directing our attention away from himself, right? What does he say? Whose strap of his sandal, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That, that, that's how... That's how grand or how great this Messiah would be, so much mightier than John the Baptist, who was understood to be a great man. Well, the third authentication is seen in verses 9, uh, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came to, from Nazareth of Judea and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Here we actually uh, get to see something uh, really uh, interesting in the ministry and life of Jesus. We see Jesus being baptized in verse Nine, coming out of the water. And then in verse 10, the heavens are torn open and the spirit descends like a dove. And then verse 11, the voice came from heaven. That's the father that says, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. This is a Trinitarian experience at the, at the baptism of Jesus. We see everybody involved. The Son is being baptized, the Spirit is descending, and the Father is speaking. What are they doing? They're all authenticating who this person is, who Jesus actually is. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, or God even says it of Jesus, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. If anyone wants to, to debate what Mark said in chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus uh, is affirmed and authenticated in chapter 1, verse 11, by the Father himself, who calls Jesus his beloved Son. Co-equal, co-eternal, God himself, come to us, God's beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Mark made it clear to us who Jesus is. There's actually no doubts in the Bible about who Jesus is. It, it's very, very clear that Jesus is the Christ. 
He is the Son of God. Just a little bit later, Jesus begins his public ministry in verse, look at verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, he was arrested because of what he was preaching, confronting Herod about his sin. He was arrested, and Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And we see it again. So the gospel is not only about Jesus, but it's what Jesus said. Verse 15. Proclaim the gospel of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus opens his public ministry with these, these words. This announcement, or even a command, really, in verse 15. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's not just an invitation, that's a command from the king. That's an imperative. Repent and believe the gospel. This is some soft, if you want to, come forward, raise your hand. No, no, no. This is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the son of God saying to us now through his word, this is the command for every hearer to repent and to believe the gospel. Jesus came not just to be born not just so we can have a celebration once a year on December 25th. Not just so you can get gifts. Not so we can wear you know, uh, ugly Christmas sweaters or whatever. Jesus didn't come for that. Right? He came for something far, far greater than that. He came not just to be born. God didn't send his son into the world just to be born. He sent him to serve. Not to be served, but rather to, to give his life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He sent his son into the world to save people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. He sent his son into the world to seek and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but that in order the world might be saved through him. That's why Jesus was sent. That's what Christmas is about. It's not just about the coming of Jesus, but why Jesus came. He came to save. And how does he save? How are we saved? Look at verse 15 again. Repent and believe the gospel. How is one saved? Through repentance and Faith. If you've never come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then you have no assurance of salvation. You have no assurance of seeing God one day. You have no assurance of not experiencing the wrath of God. You certainly will. But if you hear today the command of our Lord, the imperative of our Lord, repent and believe the gospel, then you too can know Jesus as Savior. You can know him as Lord. You can know God as Father. You can know the hope of heaven. You can actually know why Christmas is actually a, a time of joy. Not just because you might have family or not just because it might have, be, be, be a fun time, but actually it's something far, far deeper. Because what Christmas tells us is that God has, has met our deepest need. Our greatest need is for a Savior. We don't get Easter without Christmas. 
We don't get death, resurrection. We don't get, we don't get the, the, the satisfaction of God's wrath without Jesus coming first. Jesus had to come in order to die, and he has come. And so yes, Christmas is a beautiful time. Yes, we should rejoice. But the real rejoicing takes place for those who've recognized who Jesus is. The Christ, the Son of God. And if this is why Jesus has come, if Jesus has come to save, if this is what Christmas is really about, then how does that affect those who follow him? Some of you might say, well, I, I have, I've already believed in Jesus. So, good. All right. You've already believed. How, how does Christmas affect you now? How, what, what, what does the Christmas have to say to you now? Well, here in Mark chapter 1, Mark himself, the prophets, John the Baptist, the Father, and the spirits all bore witness to who Jesus was. Basically, they're all testifying that this Jesus is actually Christ. He's actually the Messiah. So one of the ways in which Christmas should inform us or affect us is that we too are called to testify to who this Jesus is. Like Mark saying, this Jesus is the Christ. Are you prepared and are you ready to tell other people the good news about Jesus? That he is the Christ. That he has come to save that he's come to seek and to save sinners. He hasn't come for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. He didn't come for people who were found. He came for people who were lost. And the truth is that we're all in the second category. We're all sinners. We're all unrighteous. We're all lost. And that's who Jesus came for. He came for you. So how are you sharing the gospel, the good news, during this Christmas season? Are you looking for ways? Are you praying for opportunities to share? Look for opportunities to invite people. Invite people to pray. Is there anything I can pray for you for? What, what a simple way to start a relationship. Invite people to come to church with you. We have invite cards we've already talked about. Give them a card saying, would you like to come to church with me? You know, it might be a scary time to come to a church all by yourself. Don't know where to sit don't know how things work, come with me, sit with me. It's a simple invitation. But mostly, we don't want to just invite people to pray for them or to invite them to church. We want to invite them to come to Jesus. And all of those are, are steps towards that. Even the step to, to, to come into a church is a step towards that. There's a survey done that says, 86% of people who started attending church did so because they were invited by a friend. By a friend. Which means maybe you were invited by a friend today. That's why you're here. And we're glad you're here. In order to hear the good news about Jesus. And maybe there's others that we need to invite. Maybe there's someone in your life right now who needs to hear about Christ. Maybe you know that name even right now. Begin praying for opportunities. Begin praying for places and, and ways that you can invite them to know God, to be part of what, what, what is going on, hearing the gospel, getting them in front of the gospel, even in ways here at the church. Jesus came to bring his kingdom. The kingdom isn't here yet. Not here yet, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> I don't think it's a secret. It's not here yet, but it's coming. He came to start it. And as we live we live in light of that kingdom, right? The Lord taught us to pray. 
thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Well, what does it mean to say your kingdom come? It means that his, his authority, right? That he is king over all of this. So we, we're praying for his literal kingdom to come. Yes and amen. But until then, what does it mean for us to live in light of the kingdom? It means that we live under his rule. It means that we recognize that he is king. And therefore, he has say. He calls us to a life. Your will be done. What's the implication? Not my will be done. That's the implication. So we say, when we hear Jesus say in verse 15, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The ruler is here. The king is here. We talked about that last week. The son of God has come. What does that mean for you? How will you live because that is true? Christmas reminds us again that Jesus Christ, the son of God, has come. The gospel is good news and it's true. We invite you to believe it today and then go and live it Live in light of it and share it with others. Let's pray. Father, would you help us today? Would you help us this week to live in light of the good news of Jesus? The good news that Jesus has come. And not only has he come, but he's come to do for us what no one else could or would do. That is to live the perfect life and die in our place in order that we who would repent and believe could be made at peace with God could know you, Father, as our Father, and one day live with you forever. If we would but repent and believe, to bow our knee to you, to recognize that you are king. God, I pray for anyone here this morning who doesn't know you yet. What a great time. What a great day. Behold, now is the day of salvation for them to recognize Jesus as the Savior they need, Submit themselves to you, God, as the, the, the King of kings and the rule, Lord of lords. To repent and believe. For those who have, may we live this day in light of the good news. That Christ has come and he's coming again. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.